You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. The New York City Health Department posted some great advice for New Yorkers over the weekend. Actually, it's great advice for anyone anywhere who's curious about how or whether to have sex during this pandemic. You are your safest sex partner. The memo posted to the New York City Health Department's website reads, Masturbation will not spread COVID-19, but they are just to wash our hands and any of the sex toys we might be using before and after we get ourselves off. Huh. A matter-of-fact mention of sex toys, which many people do use when they masturbate right at the start. I was impressed. And the memo only got more impressive from there. Your next safest sex partner is someone you live with. It goes on. You should avoid close contact, including sex, with anyone outside your household. Sad but true. For the time being, your safest sex partner is an established sex partner. Someone you live with who isn't having sex with other people. If you don't have an established sex partner or a willing roommate, see item one masturbate. The NYC health memo included advice for sex workers and for people who meet their sex partners online. Consider taking a break from in-person dates, video dates, sexting, or chat rooms may be options for you. Which means Mike Pence's advice for us from last August when he urged Americans to spend more time on our knees than we do on the internet. No longer operative. Now is the time to spend more time on the internet. Good advice for people without partners and good advice for people who have partners but crave variety. Get that shit online. Quick fact check. Did Mike Pence, Mike Pence of all people, actually say that? Did projecting Pence really urge Americans to spend more time on their knees? Or am I making it up? Let's go to the tape. I I would just say maybe a couple of things. Number one is um, spend more time on your knees than on the internet. Yeah, he said it. Pence was speaking at an Alliance Defending Freedom event. They're an anti-gay hate group, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. All right, back to NYC Health. They want us to wash up before and after sex, which we really should have been doing anyway, and to use condoms. They don't recommend kissing so much because saliva is a very efficient way to transmit COVID-19. And you're going to want to keep your mouth away from the other end of your partner's gastrointestinal tract as well. COVID-19 has been found in the poop of people who are infected which means rimming, and they actually use the word rimming, is out for now. Lest, and I'm quoting, virus and feces may enter your mouth. A lot of people made good-natured fun of the New York City Health Department's memo while emphasizing its usefulness and praising the matter-of-fact, non-stigmatizing references to sex toys, sex workers, people who find sex partners online, and eating ass. Conservative media, of course, attempted to gin up a controversy New York Health Department gets graphic, read the headline in the New York Post. Yeah, well, with millions of people trapped at home and nothing to do but look at their phones, phones that still have Tinder, Bumble, Grindr, Recon, Threesomer, and Christian Mingle on them, it's better to err on the side of clearly informing people. As we learned during the AIDS crisis, vague or incomplete information about a disease that can be spread through sexual contact gets people killed. You gotta get explicit. And a personal note... After years of urging people to ask whether ethical non-monogamy might be right for them, after years of telling people to do what they need to do to stay married and stay sane, 
After years of advising couples whose sex lives were stagnating to think about going to a sex club and having an adventure together, after years of walking couples through planning their first threesome, here I am urging people, me, me, the guy the Daily Caller describes as a deviant of the highest order, here I am urging people to be monogamous, to take the New York City Health Department's advice and mine and stick with the person you live with. For now, for the time being, you're going to want to stick to the partner or partners or game roommates or sex toys you already have at home. But it's not forever. As the New York Times reported yesterday, if all Americans would freeze in place for 14 days while sitting six feet apart, epidemiologists say the whole epidemic would sputter to a halt. The grinder hookups and randos and very special guest stars and hot wives and bulls, they will be there for us when this is over. And the more of us who comply with the advice of epidemiologists and frazzled governors and health departments, the more of us who wash our hands and our sex toys, the more of us who stay home and get off online, the more of us who stay six feet away from people who aren't members of our households, the sooner this will all be over. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's also on the micro edition. Of the Savage Lovecast, Dr. Daniel Westreich, epidemiologist, is here to take a call. He also takes a couple of bonus calls on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. The Magnum, twice as much show and no ads. Subscribe at savagelovecast.com. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I don't know if you've tackled virtual reality porn at any point, but I learned about it from my teenage son. Apparently, it's all the rage in the 15-year-old boy market. In any event, it got me thinking. Dan, you frequently encourage couples to keep their sex lives spicy by trying a sex club together, even if they never participate. Get out of the bed, you tell them. You also warn them not to go too far too soon because they may not know how they will feel about it. So why not encourage people to try VR porn together as even a safer bet than a sex club? I still haven't tried VR porn myself as I don't have the equipment, the tech equipment anyhow, and I'm not asking my son to borrow his, but I have read that couples are using it for that purpose. Do you have any insight here? You, after these conversations, you've had these amazing conversations about VR porn that you've had with your 15-year-old son. You have more insight into VR porn than I do. I am a late adopter. I was the last person on earth to get a cell phone. I read dirty stories. I don't watch a lot of dirty videos. I'm just not a tech person. So I don't have a VR headset. I've never even seen a VR headset, much less worn one. But if your son, if your 15-year-old son and the stuff that you've read on the internet thinks this might be a good option for couples who want to spice up their sex life, short of going to a sex club together, which of course no one should be doing right now. Couples who want to spice up their sex life shouldn't be piling into swingers clubs, sex parties, or sex clubs right now. We should all be at home. And if you've got a VR headset at home or you know someone who can't legally drive, who can lend you a VR headset or a pair of them and you want to explore this kind of erotic environment or an erotic environment together with your partner to spice up your sex life, seems like a good idea. I endorse it even though I know nothing about it. Caller, you know more about it than I do and you've endorsed it. So I'm going to endorse your endorsement of VR porn technology for couples who want to spice up their sex life based on your 15-year-old son's recommendation. 
Hi, Dan. 41-year-old, soon-to-be divorced gay male here from Southern California. My soon-to-be ex-husband and I decided to call it quits last June of 2019. We both knew our relationship was over before we officially ended it. We broke up on good terms, and I could never ask for a better breakup. There's no bad blood, and we both consider each other to be friends. Because I personally knew the relationship was over before we officially ended it, I had time to mourn the loss of this relationship. Like you always say, just because a relationship ends doesn't mean it was a failure because we both learned and grew from it. He moved out immediately after we broke up, and though our divorce is still in the process, I'm still technically married to him. What I've noticed is that now that I've started dating, I notice that when I tell guys that I'm married and the divorce is in the process, I tend to get judged and automatically disqualified because I'm, quote, still married. My question is, when is a good time to bring up me being in the process of divorce? I don't want to hide my past, but I also don't want to start the possible relationship with hiding something. For some reason in gay land, it's okay to sleep with a, a lot of partners, but getting married and divorced seems to make me damaged goods. Also, how do I bring up the fact that I'm still friends with my ex without making it seem I'm carrying excess baggage? I really want to get into a serious relationship, but again, I feel like if I disclose history, I'm automatically disqualified. There are a lot of people out there who are willing to date divorced people. And there are also a lot of people out there who regard someone that they're interested in romantically being on good terms with their ex or exes as a good sign about that person, not a sign that there's too much baggage. But even those people, even people who are fine dating divorced people who maybe divorced themselves, even people who don't regard a good relationship with the ex as as a deal breaker or a red flag, a lot of those people are going to have a problem dating someone who is technically, quoting you here, still married. You are in the process of getting a divorce. You know this decision is final and the divorce is going to happen. But a lot of people out there have themselves or have friends who've been jerked around by someone who claimed they were getting a divorce and they weren't getting a divorce, had no intention of getting a divorce, or were hoping they wouldn't get a divorce or the divorce process dragged on for a very long time, became acrimonious, even if it wasn't acrimonious at first, and ate up so much of the person that they were dating's emotional bandwidth that the relationship withered and died or collapsed or just didn't get what it needed to thrive. So I would encourage you not to regard the guys who bolted after you let them know that you were still married as a sign that there won't be guys out there who are interested in dating you once you are no longer married, once you are actually divorced. And also there's a sort of sorting hat perk here. Any guy who runs from you because you have a good and loving relationship and friendship with your ex, any guy who sees that and bolts is a guy that you want to be rid of, is not a guy that you want to date because you're not going to want to be with someone who is threatened by your ex, threatened by your relationship with your ex or your friendly connection that you've sustained with your ex. You want to be with a guy who sees that as a positive, as a perk about dating you, not that he gets to be friends with your ex by, you know, by extension, but that you're the kind of person who can be in a long-term committed relationship and have it end and not have it end in total war. You know, most of us who go into relationships, most relationships fail. Very few of us date one person, marry that person, are with that person for the rest of our lives. We have a lot of short-term, hopefully short-term successful relationships. And so seeing that someone had a long-term relationship, and it, the ending was positive, that they are friends, 
is a good sign, not just about the relationship, the romantic relationship that you might have with that person, but the relationship you might have with that person when you're no longer dating them. And odds are that there will come a time when you two are no longer dating. And to have another friend in the world, someone you learned and grew with, that you can rely on, who can still be a presence in your life, that's a perk. That's a, that's a good sign about that. So yeah, once we can all start dating in a serious way again, hopefully after your divorce is finalized, any guy who runs from you because you're on good terms with your ex is a guy that you want to see the backside of anyway. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old bi woman living in the South, and I had a question about coming out as a sex worker. Basically, I've been doing sex work for about six months now, full service, so fucking for money. And it's something that I'm really enjoying and I feel like I'm really good at. And I have had pretty much no safety issues or scary situations that have arisen so far. Um, and it's at the point where I feel like this is something I could see myself doing for a long time. And I am getting sick of lying to my parents about it. They think that I have a regular job um, as a nanny. And so I have to make up stories about that. And obviously they have no idea that I'm doing this as my main source of income. I'm also planning some trips in the future that I'm going to be funding with the money that I've made from sex work. And I don't know how to explain to them where that money is coming from. I think my dad would be pretty accepting of it once he gets over the initial shock. But my mom seems like she might freak out. And I don't want either of them to worry about my safety or cause them unnecessary stress. So I guess I'm just not sure what the best way to tell them is or even if it's a good idea to tell them. I imagine those trips are off. So the pressure to come out to mom and dad about your actual source of income is probably lessened. And as Michael Hobbs wrote in HuffPo in a piece about sex workers being hit really hard by the current economic crisis, it may be that you are exiting sex work for the moment. And if that's the case, if you're being hit hard by this, my heart goes out to you and I am sorry. I am going to answer your question as if it was six months ago, though, try to give you some advice. I am a firm believer in running parents on a need-to-know basis. Your parents are going to take an interest in how you're supporting yourself. are going to want to know whether you're okay. But do your parents need to know, particularly if you're only six months into doing sex work, that sex work is what you're doing now? You're thinking this might be something you want to do over the long term. You've had a good experience so far. You've had positive experiences with clients so far. No scary experiences with clients so far. And you feel like you are good at this job and sex work is work and it's a job and it's a legit job. And if you want to go into sex work long-term and professionally, I support you. A lot of parents are going to freak out and borrowing a phrase from Esther Perel that she uses in reference to coming out to a partner about having cheated on them. You are contemplating the burden of knowing, putting the burden of knowing on your parents' shoulders. And as much as you reassure them that all of your experiences have been positive and maybe you've established a regular client base and you're not seeing strangers anymore on a regular basis, your parents are going to worry anyway. They'll think you're telling them that just so that they're not worried about you when they need to be worried about you or should be worried about you. And again, I always circle back to running parents on a need-to-know basis. Do they need to know this? They need to know you're okay. They need to know you have a source of income. They need to know you're taking care of yourself and that your bills are paid. You can – assure them of all of that without giving them the details. 
without telling them that you're doing sex work, particularly now, particularly when you're just six months in, you may feel very differently three months from now or six months from now and, and exit sex work after a year. And then if you had told your parents at six months, you will have freaked them out and burdened them with knowing unnecessarily. So I would kick the can down the road a bit. Your dad might be okay with it. If you think he might be okay with it, you could roll it out with him first and strategize around how to roll it out with mom if you're going to roll it out with mom, if you're going to tell mom. As for explaining, you know, having irregular hours and going on trips, you can always tell your parents that you're a personal assistant now for a wealthy person. You signed an NDA, non-disclosure agreement. You can't really talk about the job or who this person is, but that's why you're traveling a little bit. Uh, and that you have a regular source of income and you're good and they shouldn't worry. And then you don't have to go into details about how you're actually supporting yourself. I, I want to own the the conflict here and own my hypocrisy. I think there shouldn't be a stigma attached to sex work. And if more people are open about doing sex work, being sex workers, that is the quickest way to dismantle the stigma and shame. And yet I'm advising you not to tell your parents, not to panic or worry your parents, to run your parents on a need-to-know basis, and there's no way out. I can't finesse my way out of this corner that I painted myself into. There is a contradiction here, and instead of trying to reconcile it at the moment and as a parent, I just want to acknowledge it and let you all know that I'm going to sit with it. Hi, Dan. I have a question that I'm sure many, many people are asking, and that is about the coronavirus. With this epidemic happening all around the world and all in our respective cities and towns, what what are we supposed to do about dating these days when we're not even supposed to uh, shake anybody's hand? Are we no longer allowed to kiss a new person? Really, really would like to know. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Daniel Westreich, Associate Professor of Epidemiology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Hey, Daniel Westreich, how are you? Thank you for jumping on the phone. Uh, hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. Uh, I imagine you're under a lot of uh, pressure right now and you have a lot to tend to, so we really appreciate you taking a moment to talk about dating and sex issues with us uh, during this crisis. Uh, so dating, I'm getting lots of calls. I'm getting lots of emails from people wondering if they have to stop making out with new people? And the answer to me seems obvious, but I'm not an epidemiologist, so I'm going to let you go. It seems obvious to me, too, that people need to stop making out with new people, at least for a while. The, uh, I, I hope we're in agreement on that point, Dan. A hundred percent. Yeah. The social distancing idea is, is one that I, I think might make sense to go over again really briefly. And the idea of flattening the curve you know, what we're trying to do with that public health strategy is to slow down the spread of this disease so that uh, serious cases of the disease don't overwhelm our healthcare system. We've seen, we've all seen these really terrifying statistics about the potential case fatality rate of the coronavirus. And, um, there are a lot of caveats in those numbers, but one of the most important things to keep in mind about those numbers is that, is that they're, they're social phenomena as well as biological. Mm -hmm. It's not just a consequence of the biology of the coronavirus, whether or not it's going to kill you. It's also a consequence of 
what kind of healthcare facilities and intensive care units you have access to. And so if we get a huge, huge number of new cases all at the same time, um, there's going to be less intensive care unit beds available and the number of people who die is going to go up, and maybe we'll see, up by, by a lot. And we'll see what we're seeing in Italy, which is triage decisions having to be made. There's not enough respirators to take care of everyone uh, who desperately needs to be on a respirator. So they're deciding – I mean medical professionals are being put in a position of having to decide who gets one and who doesn't, basically who lives and who dies because they have such a huge spike. And that's what we're trying to avoid with social distancing are those kinds of desperate choices. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so the way we're trying to do that is to try to break, uh, in some sense, to break the, the, the giant networks of people interacting. Um, and this is a, a subject that, that has been studied pretty well in a lot of other contexts as well, including um, sexually transmitted infections where it's the risk to a group of people has to do with network connectivity. The more people in contact with the more people, the faster a disease can spread throughout all those people Mm -hmm. uh, or an infection. And so in this case, we're trying to break apart the network into little self-contained pods. And so if somebody in my household gets coronavirus, probably everyone else in the household is going to get it, but then we're not going to spread it to the next household over. Right. And, and what that's going to do, hopefully, is if, then if people in my household need a hospital bed, there is one because 30 other households aren't demanding that same bed at the same moment. And bringing it back to the caller, if someone in your household is sneaking yeah. out to hook up with someone they just met on Tinder and make out <laughs> with that person and then coming back home, the odds of everyone in your household getting coronavirus shoot up. That's right. We, we think so, especially given how much uh, there's all of the research here is preliminary, but there are some new findings that suggest that quite a lot of the coronavirus uh, transmission is happening from asymptomatic people, people who don't know that they are infectious to others. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. And and the same, and the same thing is true in reverse. If, if, if somebody in the household is infected, doesn't know yet, and then sneaks out to make out with that person they just met on Tinder, well, that person's going to get it and spread it to whatever other networks they're a part of. The parallels to HIV sometimes are eerie. I mean, it's very different than HIV, but one of the one, one of the eerie parallels for those of us who lived through the AIDS crisis is that most people who had it didn't know they had it and weren't symptomatic. So just avoiding, you know, having sex with people with KS lesions at the time wasn't a strategy that would protect you. You know, limiting the numbers of partners that you had, safe sex practices, outer course, using condoms, that could protect you. But just looking at a guy and trying to guess whether he had HIV or not couldn't protect you. And this is the same thing. You don't know who has it because most people are asymptomatic even as they spread it, just like with HIV. Yeah, that it's, it is. Um, I, I agree that, that there are those parallels. There are, of course, a lot of stigma issues around HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, that that um which you know are are unfortunate um but there aren't those same stigma issues around coronavirus so i don't want to take that parallel too far there there's right. such socially different phenomena but um but the asymptomatic transmission is a is a real is a real concern here people are bored people are home alone uh, i would encourage those people if you're <laughs> bored and horny and home alone to masturbate 
you know, to, to bring it back to another worldwide calamity after 9-11, there are a lot of stories written about, you know, people who were bored. Airline travel was shut down. Everyone was, you know, terrified mm-hmm. and hunkered down. There are a lot of stories written about people running out and having terror sex. Bars were full and people were hooking up and doing things right. that if they weren't scared out of their minds, they might not do otherwise. This is not an instance where we can have that kind of life-affirming terror sex, not with strangers. If you have a partner that you're already fluid bonded with, to, to revive that old phrase, and you're corned, you know, you're holed right. up with that person, you're distancing yourself socially from others of that person, they're in your household, you can have sex with that person. But uh, the caller seems to be interested in, and, and it, I'm pro-sex with randos, if people are safe and conscientious about it. She's interested in like whether this impacts sex with randos. Absolutely it does. You can't have sex with randos right now. You have to maintain a six-foot distance. There's no exception for the tongue. And there's no six-foot, six-inch long penises out there where you can have sex with somebody while staying six feet away from them. So really casual hookups are just off the table right now. Yeah, yeah. I feel like chat roulette might be everyone's friend again at this point. But um and I, I saw something online that I, I unfortunately can't give credit to, but somebody's suggesting that we should, you know, we're, we're in, we're in like long tortured letter writing phase of courtship right now. Mm-hmm. People should, people should be writing each other sonnets. You know, Patton Oswalt tweeted uh, just yesterday that he and his wife uh, didn't meet for three months that they fell in love uh, direct messaging each other, that they were introduced online and, you know, he's a comedian, he's traveling and their whole courtship was through DMs. So that is possible. It is possible for you to find a new partner and, and, and establish a long and loving and lasting commitment without being in each other's presence, at least for the next three months. Can we keep you for a couple more calls? Yes. Hey Dan, 50 something guy in the Northwest gearing up for the long staycation we all need to be taking right now. I'm a few months into a relationship, and it's a wonderful relationship. In any ordinary time, I wouldn't have reason to call you, but we don't live together, and we're starting to feel nervous about spending time together out of concerns about the virus. I'm wondering about the strain that that distance will have on us. What advice do you have for the care and feeding of our life relationships in this time of social distancing? Well, this is a little different. It's not a new relationship. It's a newer relationship. He's not talking about hooking up with some rando. This is somebody he's been dating, presumably making out with over the last three months. They don't live together. Can they, if they're careful, moving through the city to avoid all other people, can they still hook up, these two? Yeah, I mean, so the first thing I want to say about this is that we, as far as I know, there aren't good scientific results or models to that address social distancing at this kind of fine level of question. So, you know, science can help guide our intuition here, but I don't think that there's a good scientific paper we can reference that gives us a solid yes, no answer to this. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's, that's my necessary caveat as a scientist. Um, But this seems like a situation to me where Again, the point of the social distancing is to create sort of small pods of people who aren't interacting with other pods of people. And if uh, these two people want to form a pod that's just the two of them, and they're really socially distancing themselves in other ways from other people, then that seems like uh, a, a, a reasonable risk to take. It would uh, it would clearly be 
in a lot of ways better if, if nobody ever talked to anybody for the next month. But we know that that's not realistic. And it, it's probably not, uh, it, not only is it not realistic, it's probably not healthy for people's mental health and emotional health. So, that, you know, if these two people are, in fact, really, really careful about who else they come into contact with, um, they can probably be their own little pot of two um, so long as they're really, really careful about it. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I, I agree and that that would be my advice is to, you, you know, the, you say there's not the, the research here, there's not the data yet, but this does seem like apply a little bit of common sense. Uh, we've been told it is okay to leave the the house so long as you're careful to maintain a six foot distance from other people to obtain groceries, to, to, to go to the pharmacy, even to go to, for a walk with your dogs, if only to see other human beings, but from a distance while then going home to the people in your pod. I love that description of it. The people in your pod in, that you share a living space with. You've been, the, the caller has been dating this person for three months uh, all through the initial spread of the the, the virus through the, all over the world, um, and it does seem like they're even though they're in separate apartments, they're kind of in a virtual pod already. And I think they should maybe upgrade to an actual pod. Like he should go stay at her house for a while, or uh, she at his house to minimize the numbers of times they're traversing the city to get to see each other. But it seems like a reasonable thing. It seems like these two should. As you, to, to borrow your word, be a pod together and shouldn't feel guilty or, or, or weird about it so long as they're not, you know, licking the, you know, the handrails on the bus on the way to see each other and maybe stay right. off the goddamn bus. Right. Walk. Right. Yeah, maybe, maybe stay off the bus. We, uh, right. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I live with my partner and our two children and we're, we're, a, we're a pod of four. It's not, you know, not everyone has to be a, a pot of, of only one and, and uh, not get to see another human being for the next three months in person. That's not, that doesn't seem sustainable uh, just from a strictly human level. Yeah, there were people who isolated themselves during the SARS epidemic uh, alone and showed signs of PTSD when their isolation ended. Like to be completely alone can cause emotional trauma. For people, so you two, yeah. better you be yeah. together and take the small risk of getting to each other at this moment than to be completely alone for the next three or four months. Yeah, this seems like a moment to to really go all in on that relationship if you're going to. <laughs> right, go all in. She needs to be at your place, or you need to be at her place. No more running back and forth for a while, at least for the next what fourteen days. Uh, yeah. Again, I mean, the the longer the better. Right. We're trying to flatten this curve out as much as we possibly can. And at the very least, we need to buy time to to run better models for the epidemiologists to fit and run better models so that we have better guidance about exactly how much social contact and social distancing is necessary. I think, you know, again, we're still in such early days. Everything is, is moving so quickly that we lack a lot of like the specific answers to the most specific questions that people have. So given, given what we've seen in Italy, given we know how bad this can get, we want to err on the side of extreme caution, at least for a while. Hi, Dan. I'm a cis bisexual poly woman calling from Colorado with a question about how to navigate poly life in the age of the coronavirus. 
Um, I'm married to my primary partner, and we together have two partners. I also want to mention that I do struggle with some pretty severe anxiety. Um, I usually have some tools to take care of it, but this situation, not so much. Never dealt with this before. Um, so some more context. One of our partners has two partners and isn't aware of all the people that they are dating other than her. Um, and our other partner, up until now, we've had a don't ask, don't tell situation. But now this would seem to be a necessary time to step out of that and definitely ask and tell. Um, we also want to try not to jeopardize or prioritize any relationship based off of fear of something so hypothetical. So we're all wondering what you would recommend about precautions and how to start the conversation. Also, am I crazy for caring so much about getting it or should we just keep living our lives? I should also mention I'm 25, no pre-existing medical conditions other than my super Jewish lactose intolerant stomach. <laughs> this isn't a hypothetical, right? This We're not talking about jeopardizing That's relationships right. this is based not on a drill. hypothetical. This is actually fucking happening. <laughs> it's, it is. And and some of the best guidance I've I've read and heard from from my colleagues and the experts on this is to just assume for the moment that you have coronavirus and act accordingly, especially for the next couple of weeks. Another eerie parallel, I'm sorry to HIV, when we were told to assume everyone had HIV and act accordingly. To always mm. take safe sex steps and and act accordingly. Don't assume non-infection and assume infection. Um this seems like you know, I don't want to be poly negative. But I don't think the caller and her spouse should be seeing their secondary partners who have tertiary partners and quad partners. It just seems to me like Polly at this moment, as again, I'm a supporter of Polly and polyamorous relationship myself, doesn't seem practical or practicable. It's again, it's a, it's a, it's a how, how big are the pods going to be question. And what's especially unnerving about this caller situation is that we don't know how big her pod is, mm-hmm. right? There's, it's a don't ask, don't tell. So she's got partners who have partners who have partners and uh, talk about exponential growth. How many people are in that calling network? Right. And how, and if you're socially, if you're engaged, if you're following the, the recommendations to engage in, social distancing, there isn't an exception or carve out for sexual romantic partners. So, you know, you leaving to go visit your secondary partner who isn't, who you aren't isolated with, you aren't socially distancing with basically makes your pod at home more vulnerable to infection. And it makes all the other pods that are connected to that pod more vulnerable to infection. Uh, there are two things that I wanted to, to pull out from, from that call. But one is that, um, the caller was saying that, that she's not particularly afraid of, of getting coronavirus because she's 25 years old and has no particular pre-existing conditions. The thing is that that maybe makes it more likely that she will go around spreading it asymptomatically mm-hmm. to other people which increases the chances that it gets to a vulnerable person. I, I, I think that a, a, a useful way to think about social distancing right now is that it's the closest thing we have to a vaccine. Hmm. We don't have a vaccine for coronavirus, right? But the point of a vaccine is to reduce the number of vulnerable people and cut down transmission. And we all need to be getting our flu vaccines every year, in part, in large part, to protect people who are vulnerable, who are immunocompromised, and who can't get the flu vaccine. 
to protect them from getting the flu. A big part of why it's important to get vaccines like that is to protect other members of our community, the vulnerable ones. And that's a lot of what social distancing is trying to accomplish. We don't have a, you know, a, a, an injectable vaccine immunization for coronavirus, but we have social distancing. And your polycule might not be something that you can sustain with face-to-face, real-time, tongue-in-mouth contact during this stage of social distancing. Yeah, and it might. So it might be a time again for for elaborate, uh, like tortured poetry to be exchanged <laughs> back and forth, and a lot of phone sex dates. Yeah, and and video chat, maybe group video chat, jack off sessions. Uh, fuck the right. husband, you know. Right. Fuck the spouse caller. Stay at home. Fuck the spouse. Uh, if you want to go into an isolation pod, if you want your spouse and your secondary partners to join you at, at home while no one's working and no one's your people are going out as little as possible. Maybe the four of you can have a fuck fest, but you're not going to be able to have that Google Cal date night rotation that people in large complicated polycules uh, joke about having because they actually do have. And so they joke about having those. That is just not practical or advisable right now. So I am not going to advise you to do it. And both Myself and the epidemiologist are telling you this is not a hypothetical. This is not war games with Matthew Broderick. It's not 1982. This is happening. <laughs> it is happening. Uh, the other, the other thing I just wanted to comment on in her call is that she she talks a little bit about having anxiety, and and you just talked about this that there are real actual mental health consequences to isolation, and so I do want to encourage her to to take her anxiety seriously in this time and try and get therapy by phone or by video chat if that's a thing that she wants or has access to and to to stay in as much social contact as she can you know we've been calling this social distancing but but we we also have to maintain social ties right. you, you know it's really it's physical distancing but but we want to we want to maintain social ties um, and we're doing it to support each other socially. And it's easier now than ever to maintain those social ties, even erotic social ties, uh, because we have social media, because we can text and we can video chat. Um, it's not just waiting for the postman to come with those long, tortured love letters that we have to do anymore. You can in real time keep up <laughs> yeah. with your friends. And then you can, you can in real time uh, sustain sexual intimacy, not sexual contact, not maybe the preferred mode. But you can still have and share erotic experiences with everyone in your life who plays that sort of a role in your life. It's just whether you can be in the same room with that person right now. That that's a It's not a question. You can't yeah. or shouldn't be in the same room with that person unless they're the people or person that you are – that's in your pod and at home. That's in your pod. Yeah, this this seems like a moment that, that cliche that your your largest sex organ is your brain – this this seems like a moment to maybe repurpose that and say that currently the largest sex organ is the internet. Daniel Westreich, Associate Professor of Epidemiology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Thank you for taking a break from running those better models uh, and getting us better advice. We really appreciate your input today. Thanks for having me, Dan. Hi, Dan. Um, in the years after my husband and I had our first child, I didn't really feel like having sex. My, um, I was quite depressed, and uh, I didn't really like my body, and that just tanked my libido. Now, we did have sex fairly often. It just wasn't terribly enthusiastic, and it wasn't 
the kind of sex my husband would prefer to be having, uh, he always could tell that I didn't really enjoy it or was doing it to please him. Um, now, since then, uh, I made some changes. I started feeling better about myself, and we started having really wonderful sex again. And then almost immediately after uh, I found out that he had cheated on me during that dark time, uh, and I surprised myself by forgiving him immediately, and it made our sex life even hotter as we reconnected, and um, surprise, surprise, we got pregnant again. And uh, since having a second child, uh, I got my body back immediately and uh, he had a you know was getting blowjobs from me the week we came back from the hospital we've had sex several times a week um, we've had a threesome since our child was born less than a year ago uh, we've had anal sex multiple times since my child was born less than a year ago um, and I've been feeling rage just all consuming rage against him I didn't feel after I found out that he cheated on me immediately, um, and I can't figure out why. Um, I think I want him to be more grateful, but I feel like he still feels sorry for himself, that he isn't getting everything he wants all the time. He doesn't like it when, uh, you know, we go a few nights without having sex. He doesn't like it when uh, I go out with friends or do something that makes me happy that doesn't have anything to do with him, uh, and I'm... I just feel like he should be more grateful for me. And I'm feeling really, really, really angry. What do I do? My first reaction was, it sounds like you may have sublimated some of your anger after the disclosure of the affair. You say that you instantly forgave him and your sex life revived after the affair, revived to the extent that you got pregnant again right away. And I wonder if you two spoke to a counselor. I wonder if he took responsibility for the affair that he had for the infidelity and apologized to you and made it up to you in a sincere and comprehensive way. And if he didn't, and to save the relationship, you just papered over your anger. It could be that now the anger is surfacing and attaching itself to what sounds like genuine complaints that you have, legitimate beefs about his expectations and the demands he's making on you. You had a baby a year ago. You've had three ways. You've had anal sex. You've been giving him blowjobs within the week of the baby's birth. You've been tending to him sexually. And rather than being just going to use your word because he should be fucking grateful about all the fucking He's angry when you go out with friends. He's annoyed if you go a couple of days, two or three days without sex when you have two small children, one an infant under a year old in the house. He has unrealistic expectations that are putting a lot of pressure on you to come through for him. And you've been coming through for him a lot. And hopefully some of this sexual activity that you've been engaging in with your husband has been mutually pleasurable. Hopefully you have enjoyed it. But his ingratitude and his demands and his selfishness is spoiling. It's souring sex for you. Even perhaps the memory of what had been, you know, three months ago, mutually pleasurable sex because he is being a demanding infant about sex. And you have a demanding toddler and a demanding infant in the house already. So get thee to a couple's counselor virtually. A lot of counselors out there right now doing online counseling, get thee to a couple's counselor, go. Unpack your anger if it was never addressed about the affair. 
obtain if it was never given the apology that he owed you and a sincere apology. And he's going to have to demonstrate to you that it is sincere and then have a disinterested third party help adjust his expectations around your shared sex life so that it remains mutually pleasurable so that sex doesn't become something that you are dispensing to assuage or treat or avoid his anger. Because if this becomes about him controlling you with his anger and controlling you sexually with his anger, the relationship will not survive that. And hopefully if someone can communicate that to him who isn't you or you and someone can communicate that to him effectively, he will step back from this precipice. He is going to destroy your marriage by being a selfish, entitled brat about sex. Not a brat, a fucking bastard about sex. People with two small children, one an infant at home, typically don't get sex once a week, much less a few times a week. And you certainly don't complain if you have an infant at home that you've gone a couple of days without sex. And you don't begrudge your wife a night out with friends. Yeah, no. Couples counselor. That's my assignment for you too. That's my prescription right now. Get a couples counselor. Hi, Dan. So I'm getting married in a few weeks to a great guy and I'm really excited. But we've been apart for the last six weeks. We're in the process of moving back to my home state and he's been spending some time with family while I've finished up my job. During this time, I've been mostly crashing on a friend's couch. On my second to last night in town, I took her out for dinner and drinks to thank her for letting me stay at her house. We ended up getting pretty drunk, mostly at her request. I was just trying to be a good sport. I did have a fun night until right before bed when things got weird. We were saying goodnight, and she kind of cornered me and hugged me and started getting a little handsy and telling me how attractive she thinks I am. I was so drunk, I really didn't think much of it or realize what was happening. Then she asked me if she could kiss me, and I said yes. Still not really comprehending what was happening. I thought she just wanted to give me a kiss on the cheek or something, but that was not what she wanted. She kissed me very aggressively um, and probably would have been happy if things went further than that. I managed to extract myself from the situation, and she did relent and push it any further. But still, I feel really hurt and betrayed by her actions. She has spent time with me and my fiancé, knowing full well that we are getting married, and she never bothered to ask if we were monogamous but we are. Not only does that upset me, but her advances felt kind of predatory and like a violation of trust. Reminds me of bad encounters I've had with random drunk guys at parties in college. I'm careful about who I drink around to avoid situations like this. I assumed I was safe being vulnerable in that way around her, but I, I feel like I really wasn't. I was so upset by what happened. I left her house the next day while she was at work without saying goodbye. She has apologized, but I don't know if I really want to continue our friendship. My question for you is, am I overreacting? Do I, am I justified to feel hurt, betrayed, and violated? It was just a kiss, and I did say yes, but I feel I was way too drunk to give consent and that it was inappropriate for her to make such advances while we had both been drinking. We talk a lot about how women are socialized to not say no to men, and men are scary testosterone-soaked dick monsters. And women get into situations with men where they attempt to deflect or de-escalate in a way that the dude selfishly interprets as she hasn't said no and they can keep pressing their case. Uh, sometimes women will 
wind up appearing to consent to sex under duress and pressure because they fear the reaction that they're going to get from the dude. They fear violence and it's a legitimate fear considering the numbers of women out there who are subjected to violence at the hands of men, sexual violence at the hands of men. But here we have an example where that impulse, that instinct to deflect, uh, to defer, to not say no played out in a moment between two women. Your friend backed you into a corner and began to get handsy with you. And maybe you were so drunk that you couldn't quite put the pieces together. You didn't understand what was happening. But it's likelier that you went into that default, defer, deflect, not say no. And then when your friend asked you for permission to kiss you, even though she'd already made it clear through her actions that the kiss was unlikely to be a friendly goodnight kiss, but was a making a move kiss, you said yes. Under a kind of emotional duress or force of habit, you say it reminds you, this experience reminded you of past ugly interactions with drunk college boys. And then she kissed you and you feel hurt and betrayed and violated because you were violated. And your friend who knew you were in a monogamous relationship, who knew you were engaged, betrayed your trust and you are hurt as a result. Your feelings of betrayal, hurt and violation are completely legitimate. Do you salvage the friendship? Is the friendship worth salvaging? Depends. Depends on how you feel about the apology. An apology just tossed out. Oh, I'm really sorry about that. An apology that may be motivated by self-loathing or the realization after the fact that they misread the situation and they're just embarrassed and want to shut down conversation. That's not an apology that will salvage the friendship. The apology that salvages the friendship is the apology that comes with a conversation about what happened, what that person knows now, what they were thinking in the moment. Was it predatory or was it a misapprehension? If it was predatory, if your friend's a sexual predator, obviously you don't want to be friends with a sexual predator. If your friend drunkenly misapprehended your feelings toward her, and maybe she engaged in a little bit of clitful thinking and rounded those feelings up or those her perception of your feelings up to uh, a sexual interest that wasn't there. And, and all of us are susceptible to that kind of dickful or twitful, twatful, clitful thinking. If in conversing with her, if in having a long drawn out conversation with her, you believe her when she says that she misapprehended, she misunderstood. Maybe her judgment was impaired by the alcohol too and she became aggressive and impulsive and she has cut back on her drinking or stopped drinking as a result of this experience. Are there lessons that she has learned and taken away from this? And her self-loathing and mortification about the experience, about screwing up your friendship, did it change her behavior? Is it changing how she moves through the world? And if you feel, after conversing with her, that she understands how enormous a fuck-up this was and how you she violated you, and if in conversing with you, you get the sense that she's not the kind of person who enjoys violating other people or wanted to violate you, well, then maybe you can salvage your friendship on the other side. But a perfunctory shut-this-down apology, can we get past this, and no desire on her part for accountability to you, 
and no sense that she values the friendship enough to make the changes that she needs to make and, and scrutinize her own behavior and actions that night in the way she needs to scrutinize them, well, then the friendship can't be salvaged. Hi, Dan. I'm a mid-40s, cis, straight male. I'm married to a woman for almost three years. We have a sort of non-traditional, weird, open relationship. She lives with her boyfriend of two years. And I currently don't have another partner because I believe it'll hurt her feelings for me to be with another person, even though she has expressed that she wants me to find somebody else. We stopped having sex shortly after she started dating her boyfriend because he's pretty monogamous and has expressed insecurity over her having sex with me, so we decided to stop. Apparently, they also stopped having sex sometime after that. And from what she tells me, he's also not very supportive at times. He tends to control the space they live in, even though she pays half and almost paid off all of the upfront costs of moving in. He recently lost his job, and she tells me that he gets upset when she tries to talk to him about how he's going to pay the rent. I've practically begged her to move out, to to live with me temporarily to save up money for her own space. We do prefer to live apart. But she gets mad at me and gives me the silent treatment for days when I try to have these conversations with her. I think she perceives me as trying to control her. I love her deeply. I want to make this work out. I want to help her. What should I do, Dan? Hey, it's Dan Savage. Uh, hi dan savage hi how are you (laughs) i'm good how are you (laughs) good good i just listened to your your call and at the very very end of it you said what do i you asked me what i thought you should do and i want to be completely honest with you what i said out loud was get a divorce yeah (laughs) now now you you have a you're married you have a wife uh that you don't live with. And I actually support that choice. Some relationships work because the people don't maintain their own households and it can contribute to the success of a relationship. And a lot of people look at that and find that very odd, but I don't personally find that odd. My brother's been in a relationship with a woman for 20 years where they both have their own households uh, and they're very Mm -hmm. much in love and very committed to each other. But one of the secrets of their success is having their own homes to go to. But that, you know, you have a wife that you don't have sex with who has a boyfriend that she doesn't have sex with and you don't live together and she doesn't welcome your sort of input or because she regards it as controlling. It's just like, what are you getting out of this relationship? You say you love her deeply. As a normie, I don't like this is some galaxy level relationship stuff that maybe I don't understand. And I want you to explain it to me how this works and what you're getting out of it and why you value it. I guess, and, and this is a question that I ask myself a lot, I, I get some level of companionship. We go to the theater together. We, um, we go on trips together. But I guess what I've been asking myself lately is, well, what's different about that versus a friend? Mm-hmm. Couldn't I? Could, couldn't she just be my friend <laughs> and right. do exactly the same things? Um, so I don't know why we're married. And, you know, um, ugh, it's, why are, it's why are you married? Well, originally we got married because, uh, she worked in a job where she didn't have health care and health insurance. And, um, I wanted to give that to her. And, uh, since then she's moved to a different job. And, and for a while I wanted to stay married to her because I didn't, first of all, my first marriage ended and I, I rejected monogamy at that point. And because of you, by the way, uh, <laughs> long time listener. And, and I started going, Oh my gosh, I don't have to be monogamous. Great. And um, when I married her, I was like, you know, this, this isn't going to be exclusive. And she totally got that. 
And then uh, things just kind of like got to the point where she was really insecure when I started trying to find other people to date. And it caused a lot. It just caused a lot of issues all over the board. And I wasn't great at communicating. That was one of the moments where my head exploded, that she has another boyfriend that she lives with. She ended her sexual relationship with you at the request of her boyfriend that she lives with. Uh, and yet you're not allowed to date other people or seek sex elsewhere. Well, to be fair to her, she's, she has said that she wants me to find other people, but I also know that it would hurt her feelings tremendously. She's so got a boyfriend kind of... <laughs> that she lives with <laughs> who's unemployed. Well, I, you know, you, I don't think you can throw unemployed around anymore as disqualifying right. to be in a relationship. Because a lot of people are unemployed right now who weren't unemployed a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but she's got a boyfriend that she lives with, and yet it would hurt her feelings if you had, uh, if you dated someone else, and so you can't I, get a divorce. I'm like back to get a divorce and, and be friends. Yeah. You know, at the beginning of the marriage, it sounds like it was companionate and no, uh, transactional is too pejorative a term, but it was companionate and utilitarian in a way. You know, you liked each other. She needed health insurance. She didn't have health insurance. You married, you had a sexual relationship, but the prime driver, it sounds like, about uh, of the marriage was, you know, needs-based and, and, and a yeah. need for health care and not, you know, you're my person and I want to be with the rest of my life. And so if it was companionate and, you know, mildly transactional at the start and it was about acknowledging a reality, the reality that she needed health care more than she needed or wanted a husband, why can't you have the same friendship post-marriage? That you had before because the, 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 the things that she needed from you and you needed from her, or you wanted to give her then that's no longer germane it no longer applies. And yet you have these, somehow you feel like you have these obligations to her as her husband where she has no obligations to you at all as your wife. Yeah. And it, and these are things that I've been muddling over for the last few years where I'm like, it's, uh, it, we're both in this psychological drama, which is ridiculous. Um, and it, and it feels like I'm getting to the point where, I mean, I, when I called you, I was like, well, I, I really feel like I got to pull the bandaid off and, and just, I hope I don't lose the, I lost the relationship with my first wife mm-hmm. because I didn't end it. Well, I communicated very poorly and uh, I didn't want to lose this one, this friendship with her. And, but at the same time, I, I just, I'm not having any of my personal needs met that I, that I really want to have met. And what are those? Um, what are the needs that she could be meeting for you that she's not? Well, sex for one. I, okay. I would like to have a sexual relationship with her uh, or with anybody, um, and that's a huge thing. And again, she's made it clear that she is okay with me. She says she's okay with me finding other people, but I also recently went on a trip to Vegas, for example, and she said, "You know, while you're there, I'd really appreciate it if you didn't." hook up with anybody oh my god like, divorce this woman okay. oh my god oh my god get a divorce uh, making her out sound she's, she's really lovely she's uh, really amazing but, I'm, you know. I'm sure she's really lovely you wouldn't have lasted this long in the marriage if there weren't qualities in her that you valued and enjoyed and, and feared losing you know losing from your life losing access to like the friendship, whatever companionship she provides you, traveling together, whatever works about the relationship. But what doesn't work about the relationship is crazy making and disqualifying. Like you can't yeah. live with these double standards. You want to have a sexual relationship with your wife and your wife got a boyfriend and then cut you off sexually? That should have been the end of the marriage. 
if you yeah, reasonably yeah. would like there to be intimacy, physical intimacy, sexual intimacy in your marital relationship, which isn't a lot to ask of a spouse in an open marriage, unless it, you know, unless both partners feel the exact same way. That's the only way this works. You know, I've seen marriages right. where the two people who are married to each other love each other, they're committed to each other. They're not sex partners. They have other sex partners, but they're still each other's first priority, the spouses. But this isn't that. Right. This is she gets to do whatever the fuck she wants, and you're not allowed to do anything that you might need to do. I was wondering, do you think that the relationship could transition? And what I was going to go to her, because I, I also get some financial benefits, tax benefits, because, you know, the tax system is set up to, to uh, privilege couples um, and, you know, other benefits that we offer to each other. Is, do you think it's possible to transition the marriage into truly just a truly transactional relationship where we both agree, hey, we're we're friends who are just going to take advantage of this system and we'll still love each other and care about each other. Absolutely. But for that to happen, you can no longer allow her to control and edit your life. If she has absolute freedom to do whatever the fuck she wants, that has to be equal mutual. You have absolute freedom to do whatever the fuck you want. You you get the tax benefits, the, the insurance benefits, whatever the inheritance, benefit, whatever it is, whatever the other things are, the other incidents of marriage that benefit you both, you both get that, but then you have autonomy. She has, it sounds like complete autonomy and you have, and you're waiting for her permission to get some pussy in Vegas. If we ever get to go to Vegas <laughs> yeah. ever again, and, 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 and you have to get, you have to stand up for yourself. Yeah. You have to say yeah. these double standards can no longer apply if we're going to remain married. What, what goes for you goes for me or I'm gone. And yeah. that may upset yeah. her. And it's, it sounds to me like you live in fear of upsetting her. Yeah. And you can't let and yourself be controlled stop. by her anger or her yeah. hurt yeah. anymore for this to become <clears throat> the kind of marriage that, that you would like to be in if it's a, purely transactional. Oh, it's, uh, I just hate that conversation, but it's, and, and it's tougher now because I can't see her because of the coronavirus. So, and I don't want to have it over the phone. So now I guess it's just, not that it matters. I was just thinking today, well, does it matter whether I have that conversation today or a month from now or six weeks from now? Because it, you, nothing changes about our relationship. Yeah. Nothing's going to change about your relationship and you're not going to be able to find a date anyone right now. So it's not like (laughs) there's a line outside your door of potential new sex partners that you could get with because social distancing is a thing. And I assume your dick isn't six feet, six inches long. So you couldn't have sex with somebody (laughs) from six feet away. Uh, Although, you you know, you could connect with a lot of people online connecting right now on dating apps who are doing the right thing. You know, they're they're Mm. video chatting, uh, maybe having uh, cyber sex or just getting to know each other via text and, and direct message right now while maintaining a safe social distance while isolating you could avail yourself of that you could connect with people and then have somebody to go out on a date with six months from now that you know pretty well and you have an established sort of emotional connection or rapport with that's always a risk because you establish that emotional mm-hmm. connection and that rapport with someone you've never actually met then you meet that person and the physical you know mm-hmm. chemical thing isn't there that can cause a lot of hurt and heartbreak like people just you know become overly emotionally invested in someone that they've been swapping direct messages with for a week. Imagine how emotionally invested you'll be after swapping, you know, messages with someone for six months and phone calls with someone for six Mm. months. It's a risk, but if you acknowledge the risk, I I think you're less likely to be burned by it. You know, say this is it. We're both taking this risk. Uh, And then, you know, one of the potential sad outcomes here is we meet and we don't feel about each other in person the same way we do about each other 
be a text. And as long as we both know we're running that risk and are willing to, you know, assume that risk, then we can go ahead with this. So yeah, you know what? You know what you can do right now, even home alone isolated? You can send an email to a lawyer who probably needs some work and you can <laughs> initiate the termination of this marriage that you get nothing out of. Yeah. Is there an ethical consideration of starting to do online dating while I haven't told her that, you know, we're, I want to end that part of our relationship? You owe her nothing. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Dan. Ugh. You're welcome. I mean, I think it would be the right uh, thing to do to let her know that you're going to end yeah. this marriage and you no longer consider yourself bound by her insane demands on you that you still want to be friends, but it's friends now and friends don't tell friends who they can fuck in Vegas. Yeah. Friends um, don't have a veto. A friend can certainly say to you, Hey, I wouldn't fuck that person in Vegas, but a friend doesn't get to veto. You get to fuck <laughs> in Vegas. What do you think are the, I mean, I guess in the time of coronavirus, do I, how do I tell her? I mean, wait, do I wait the six months out or do I No, tell her now, tell her today, give me your phone number. I'll call her and tell her. Uh, let's not do that. <laughs> do it today. Do it now. You'll feel better. You yeah, need to, okay. while you're sitting home alone, begin to move on yeah. with the rest of your life, your, your post second yeah. marriage life. And if you want to get on dating apps and begin to connect with people in a friendly way where there's not going to be any face to face meetings for a while without feeling guilty about it, tell your wife it's over okay. and you consider yourself a free agent now and you guys can dot the I's and, and cross the T's and, and, do the legal part of it later, but emotionally now, the marriage, which for her, it already sounds like it's been over for a while, is now over for you too. Okay. All right. Thank Good you, luck. Dan. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Dan. Longtime listener here, 30 something straight woman calling with a complicated relationship question. Long story short, I have a history with this guy. We've dated, we've been friends, we've helped each other out in various ways, and it's been platonic for a long time at this point, but love and respect has grown over the years and is reaching a certain kind of intensity uh, that began to become sexual again. But there's there's been some intense erotic power play because he thinks it would be a really bad idea for me to go there. I know that he's dominant and um, sort of the mildest range of his sexuality is probably the most extreme range of mine. At least that's based on what it was like when we had a sexual relationship years ago. And that's pretty much how he thinks it is and how he thinks it would be. And he thinks that he would hurt me or scare me by going there. And yet part of the reason that I want to explore that with him is because I deeply trust him to have my best interest at heart. He has always shown that he respects and cares for me and would never want to do anything to hurt me and puts a lot of thought into that. Um, so I trust him to go there and I am feeling really turned on and I really want to have that kinky dominant sex that is his style and that he keeps kind of teasing me with. But at this point, I'm just really sexually frustrated because he will build up all this energy and then not kiss me or just kiss me a tiny bit and then tell me why it's a bad idea and why he doesn't want to lose my 
trust in him that he is such a safe person and he doesn't want to scare me. and He doesn't want to hurt me. And I'm like, look, I trust you. That's why I am inviting this. So I really want to figure out how I can, in a submissive way, invite him to feel like it's okay to go there with me. A lot of people who want to explore dom subsex or BDSM get into trouble. A lot of people who want to explore it from the submissive side get into trouble because they are trying to figure out or they couch their asks in such a way so as not to appear not submissive. They want to, in a submissive way, ask a dom to dominate them. They want, in a submissive way, to negotiate a, a, a scene. And you really can't negotiate a scene. You really can't negotiate an interaction with a dom from a submissive place. You have to be very assertive about what it is that you're interested in, what it is that you would like to experience, what's on the menu, what's off the menu, what your limits are. And you don't want the dom guessing at that. And it's unfair to the dom, actually, to expect a dom to guess at that. There are some shitty abusive doms out there who will take advantage of that and then use a sub however they want to use the sub without any regard for the subs pleasure or, or, or sense of safety and, and will exploit that, you know, impulse on the part of someone who wants to be submissive to be submissive around negotiating the terms of the scene. But there are a lot of doms out there who don't want to be with a sub who can't say what they want because they don't feel it's submissive to say what they want from the dom because they're there to serve the dom. And then they have to fly blind into a scene they might want to have guessing at what's working for the sub. You can, if you're a dom flying blind into a scene, guessing at what's going to work for the sub, wind up doing something that doesn't work for the sub, that causes the sub to pop out of the scene or have to bail out of the scene or to endure and hate the scene and feel traumatized after the fact by the scene. It's just not fair to the dom either to the shit. Well, fuck the shitty doms. Who cares what's fair to shitty doms? Shitty doms who take advantage of subs who can't articulate their desires are shitty, but it's unfair to a good and decent guy who wants to provide the sub with a good experience for the sub to refuse to be assertive during that conversation. So with your friend, let go of this. How can I, in a submissive way, invite him to do X, Y, or Z? It's not submissive. You say, hey, look, we keep flirting and we keep talking and, and, and you keep like, cranking me up. I want to do this. These are the things I want to do. I'm calling the question. Do you want to do these things with me? You may not be able to go as far as you do with some of your other sex partners or as far as you like to go, at least at first – but I'm down for doing whatever it is that you would like to do with him, whatever it is that you would like to experience with him, and then see what he says. And he can say yes or no. Just because the sub invites the dom doesn't mean the dom has to if the dom doesn't want to or if he's not into you in that same way. But considering all the flirting that you're doing, I think he's into you in that way. And you guys are doing this kind of dance around, you know, you don't want to be hurt and you don't want to be scared, but obviously there's something about his desire to hurt and scare that is arousing for you. There are degrees and gradations of, you know, pain play or pressure or impact play in a scene with, with somebody who's competent and there are degrees of gradations of fear. But I think you might want to open this conversation by acknowledging that he keeps saying that 
He doesn't want to scare or hurt you, but you are attracted to him. So there's something about the threat, if not the reality, and a lot of what people do in BDSM scenes is toy with the threat, not the reality of being hurt and scared. So just acknowledge that. But then you got to have that conversation, not as a sub, but as a free and autonomous equal individual who is interested in a shared experience, going bungee jumping with this dude. And you want to negotiate what that bungee jump is going to look like and what's going to happen on that bungee jump. But you can't have that conversation on your knees. Hey, Dan, bisexual mid-20s person living in Swampville, Florida. I (laughs) have been also faced with the interesting, will you be my quarantine question My boyfriend lives in the same house as his sister, and so I said, hey, you'd let me quarantine at your place, right? Because I live completely alone, and I don't have any pets or anything like that, and for some people, that isolation sounds like a dream. Me, not so much, and he responded with, I don't know, so I kind of let it sit overnight, and I kind of prodded him again this morning and was like, So about that, this is becoming more of a potential reality for us thoughts. And he's like, I don't know, you know, my sister lives here. It's not just my house. If it was just us, it would be different. So I said, well, would you come here? And he said, I have my dog. And he knows full well his dog can be here. He's brought the dog here before. Like, I'm kind of looking at all these different hypotheticals with how this could play out. And I'm I don't want to be faced with the potential situation that he would honestly just leave me here alone when he knows that's what I don't want. I don't know if I'm being ridiculous or if this is something where I have a right to feel like fully abandoned by my partner in this situation. I don't have any other family in this city. I just moved here five months ago. I'm isolated from everybody else. so. I don't really know what to make of this. I I don't think this situation, God forbid, would ever come up again in my lifetime. But also, what the fuck? Laura Garrett, science journalist, winner of the Pulitzer Prize for her writing about Ebola, tweeted earlier this week, windows closing for Americans, the window of opportunity for most Americans to decide where they want to be located and with whom to ride out the great pandemic is closing. So... Garrett predicts that we will all soon be under shelter-in-place orders, and so we need to think now about where we want to be and who we want to be with once we are officially quarantined. And you're thinking about that, caller. You're thinking about who you would like to be your quarantine. Well, it seems that your boyfriend doesn't want to be your quarantine. You say that you only moved to wherever in Florida you are now five months ago and you don't have a lot of other social contacts and you're isolated. Well, You can still get in a car and drive somewhere else. You can still, at the moment, so long as you maintain six feet distance from everyone you encounter along the way, get to where there are people that you could isolate yourself with when and if the order comes down for all of us to shelter in place. When you asked your boyfriend of, I assume, five months or less, if you could quarantine with him, if need be. And he responded, well, I live with my sister and I'd need to check and then didn't check with his sister and get back to you. That was a sign. And then when you suggested that perhaps he could come to your place, he said, well, I have a dog. And he said that knowing that he could bring his dog to your place. That is also a sign that he isn't interested for whatever reason, for reasons he's not articulating. 
in isolating himself with you, if need be, if it comes to that. So you're going to have to make other plans, like getting in your car and heading back to wherever it was that you came from five months ago. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. Stone Cold Jane Austen tweets, nothing breaks my heart faster than hearing people crying on the Savage Lovecast. Hashtag DTMFA. Don't know which call that was in reference to. There's a lot of calls we get around here where the only appropriate response is to dump the motherfucker already. But I got to say, I am the same. It breaks my heart when people cry. People who read my column for years noticed that I was a lot nicer on the podcast or maybe that the podcast made me nicer. And I think it did because I could hear people's voices. And sometimes I heard them near tears or in tears And the last thing I want to do is make someone cry. Now, I'm sure I have, and I'm sure I will from time to time, but I hope to keep it to a minimum. Michael Miller tweets, kudos to Dan Savage and Dr. Jane Gunter and others for doling out practical quarantine advice. To all the churches who think services are worth more than the lives of your practitioners, maybe you should start listening to the Savage Lovecast and learn a thing or two. And finally, Dustin Zero Martin tweets, Hey, at Fake Dan Savage, love your column and podcast. Thank you for all the great advice over the years, but a special thanks for helping this bi guy come out to his opposite sex partner. You're welcome, Dustin, and congrats on coming out. There were a lot of heart and rainbow emojis at the end of your tweet, so I'm going to assume that your wife reacted positively. All right, if you'd like me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, do be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hi, I'm calling about the guy with the abusive stalker ex-girlfriend. I got out of a similar relationship three years ago and finally got the stalking in about one year ago after a cease and desist letter from an attorney. Listening to your call and the fact that you were considering bending to your ex made me think that you'd probably benefit from some therapy. Therapy helped me see my part in abusive relationships I had been in. I finally saw that I was actually drawn to people that were abusive and manipulative because it felt exciting or because I thought I could, quote, help them. Therapy taught me how to recognize the signs of a great partner and start a relationship with someone who is kind and also awesome beyond my wildest dreams. I also hope you cut off all contacts with your ex, as Dan had mentioned, and get that cease and desist letter or restraining order. Not suggestions I would necessarily give to a straight woman in your position because of violence, as Dan had mentioned. And finally, I hope you nurture that good relationship you started. Hey, Dan, how's it going? Really appreciated the expert you had on last week talking about psychedelics and uh, their benefits, not just for people with PTSD, but also for healthy normals. I had the benefit of undergoing the therapy with a trained professional, both with MDMA and with psilocybin, and the changes in my life have been so incredible. I I can't even uh, go into all of them. I'm calling, though, because your expert got one thing very wrong. He said that the cause of death on MDMA had to do with not drinking enough water, among other concerns. One of the things he didn't mention, though, was that drinking too much water is the main cause of death from MDMA. Hey, Dan. I just listened to the Savage Lovecast episode 699, and uh, there was a man on there talking about how his uh, hips were big erogenous zone for him, and that getting them touched or whatever sent it straight to his cock and I have the exact same thing especially after I have like come really hard I've startled a couple people because they'll just be sort of running their hands over me and the minute they hit my hip bones I like buck off the bed 
it is so hot for me. I don't know what it is, but that is a big erogenous zone for me. And I'm glad I'm not the only one. All right. Before we get to the leave it there part of the show, we want to encourage people out there who are listening to call in and share your best quarantine sex stories. If you've had some great quarantine sex at home with your established sex partner, give us a buzz 206-302-2064 or record it on the voice memo app on your phone and send it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com and we will share them on an upcoming episode. All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Better yet, better sound quality. You can record your question or your comment on your phone using the Voice Memo app and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and Nancy and the tech savvy at Risk Youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading and please take care.